Hello, fellow travelers, and welcome to Adventures in Security, episode 12 for February 5th, 2006. This is a weekly podcast published each Sunday evening sometime before midnight, in which your hosts, Tom Olzak, Chris Osborne, and Larry Hines, explore the finer points of security management. You can find information on all the topics covered in our episodes at our blog site, adventuresinsecurity.com slash blog. If you're interested in commenting on what you hear or about topics you'd like us to talk about, please send email to podcasts at adventuresinsecurity.com. Okay, as I announced to everyone last week, uh, we have, two of my associates have joined me on the podcast, Larry and Chris. And so before we get started with the stories and the feature for this episode, I'd like them to just tell you a little bit about themselves. And we'll start with Chris. Chris? Uh, my name is Chris Osborne, and uh, I've been in IT roughly 20 years, uh, coming from an application development background, exposure to information security is mainly uh, with with Tom um, and reading articles on the web and also having some uh, level of experience uh, through my career. Um, I have dealt with security but not as much as say someone of Tom's caliber but um, my uh, experience is growing every day and uh, very much enjoying uh, what's going on here. So I hope to contribute quite a bit to this. Okay, thanks, Chris. And now we'll go over to Larry. Larry, what, uh, what can you tell us about you? I know that you like to tell everybody you're a man of mystery, but uh, let's let's <laughs> dig a little deeper. Hi, my name is Larry Hines. I'm an IT security analyst by trade, and uh, I've got about almost 10 years' experience in uh, IT engineering, specifically with um, operations level. That's it? That's it. That's all you're going to tell them about? All right, well, I can tell you, Larry works with me on a daily basis, and he's very good at his job. He does really nice vulnerability assessments. He, In fact, later on in this episode, you're going to hear about how he went and uh, helped design an intrusion defense system for um, the organization that we work for. So welcome, Chris and Larry. Thank you. Thanks, All right. In this episode, we're going to discuss peer-to-peer telephony security challenges, the real risks associated with BIOS rootkit attacks. I almost said rootkits. And <laughs> There's something like that, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, I think so. And managing unapproved applications. And in our featured topic, we'll talk about how Larry and I came up with the intrusion defense solution for a large healthcare company. So let's move to peer-to-peer voice over IP. Peer-to-peer voice over IP or VoIP services provide an inexpensive alternative to traditional switch services. So many businesses are looking at ways to implement this internet-based functionality. Before you make a decision to toss out the old and bring in the new, it's important to understand the risks associated with internet phone service. Since Skype is the unquestioned leader in this space, we're going to use it as an example provider for our discussion about how these services work, the potential risks they pose to your business, and possible ways to reduce these risks. Okay, so I guess before we get started into how Skype works, maybe we could go into a little bit of history on it. I'll, I'll pick that up. Um, Skype debuted in 2003 as a computer-to-computer, peer-to-peer communications service. And then in 2004, uh, Skype came out with Skype Out, 
which allows someone sitting at their laptop or their desktop to dial out into the actual switch telephone network and make calls to regular telephones. And I think it's important to point out that this really successful peer-to-peer communications company was founded by the same guys who founded Kazaa. And uh, I know Larry knows what Kazaa is, don't you, Larry? Yeah, unfortunately I do. Um, <laughs> I've never used it. Yeah. So so let's let's talk a little bit about how Skype works. Um, we'll we'll focus on the on the computer side of it. You download a client to your laptop or your desktop and you create your create a user ID and password which is stored on a central computer. And there's only really one central computer in this whole peer-to-peer network. It uh, it stores the authentication information for everybody in the network and it also stores uh, all these software updates. So once you're, uh, you have that software installed on your system, then you're going to go out and you're going to authenticate to the network and you're going to try to connect to someone else in the network. Now for you to talk to someone else through their PC, um, through Skype, they also have to have the Skype software loaded on their machine. Once you make the connection, and that connection can be with anyone in the world, then you communicate with each other just as if you were on the telephone. Um, it gets, it, yeah, it's got some cool features. It'll ring like a telephone when somebody's trying to get you. You can put your service on hold if you don't want to be bothered. So from a from a home perspective, that's that's pretty slick, and it, that really works well. And there's a lot, and they've there's been over 200 million downloads of this product um, since its inception. But where we run into problems is where users try to use us on a business network. The problem in a business network is that a user needs to be able to get out through the firewall to talk to someone else who's using Skype, someone on the Skype peer-to-peer network. The issue there is that most systems that are run by businesses NAT at the firewall. What that means is that they present a single IP address to the world and the IP addresses of the systems that are behind that firewall, number one, aren't seen by the world, and number two, aren't routable over the internet. So one of the ways that you can do this is to open ports, in fact, all the ports in your firewall, so that Skype can use those ports to get out using your typical NAT technology and communicate out with systems out on the peer-to-peer network. This is really great, except you now just punched a huge hole through your perimeter. The other thing you can do is to set up non-standard configurations on ports 443, which is SSL, and port 80, which is HTTP. The problem with that is that since they're non-standard configurations, and since you're punching a hole, another hole that is usually not filtered by the firewalls into your network, you're allowing for traffic to pass or ride the Skype traffic into your network. And the reason that the firewalls don't normally see the Skype traffic is because Skype decided that the standard protocols like SIP or SIP that's used by most voice over IP services wasn't good enough for them, so they came up with their own proprietary protocol. Since Skype's the only service that uses it, and since it's such a small percentage of the overall voice over IP services that are running over the internet, the firewall vendors just don't see any reason to 
incorporate that into their firewall filtering algorithms. Based on what we've just talked about and how this punches a hole in your perimeter, there's a lot of risks that are presented to your network. Now, is with Skype, knowing Kazaa was a free service, is this a... Uh Something you'd subscribe to? Do you have to pay for Skype? How, only, does it, how does it work? The only thing you have to pay for is the uh, exit out to the switched public telephone network or the public switched telephone network. Okay. As long as you stay on the internet and you stay within the Skype peer-to-peer network, there's no cost. So if I want to talk to my friend or whatever, I just tell him, download Skype, and I've got it. And now talking outside of that piece of software, that's where... If you'd like to make a call to a landline phone is when you need to uh, subscribe, and I believe it's a per-minute charge you can pay. You can charge up uh, a certain amount of minutes to use them up, kind of like a prepaid cell phone. Okay, yep, that's right. So so it's a great service, and even for businesses, the kind of people that might want to use it if they didn't, even if they didn't want to punch a hole in their perimeter, would be organizations that have a lot of remote users. So you get a remote user that's out in a hotel and they don't want to pay for hotel rates uh, for the phone service, they could use Skype. Now, the recommendation there is, though, that they don't come up through your network because the ideal situation, the ideal configuration for Skype in your network is not to. In other words, don't open up your firewall with that's, all the ports. That's a security risk is when it's you start big, opening your firewall and just putting it on your network isn't going to be like a virus or... No, I mean, but but the whole point here is to communicate over the Internet. So I'm not sure that, you know, if I wanted to call Larry uh, next cube over, I don't think I'm going to use Skype because... You could just yell over. I can yell over. That's one way to do it. And I do. (laughs) Yeah, often. So with Kazaa, Kazaa has you download and put all the, uh, let's just say, spyware, malware type uh, pieces of architecture on your system I, skype is nothing like that no skype doesn't do that you skype, don't subscribe to uh in, in my opinion the only the only problem with skype is the fact that you have to open a big gaping hole in your program okay, that's where the risk comes into play not right with a piece of uh you're not allowing a hacker uh, or somebody watching you or well the, recording the, information about your movement or anything well, such as that. It also goes to something else we're gonna talk about today and that's managing unapproved software. Uh most of the people in organizations, I know in the organization that, that we work for, they load Skype on their systems without the knowledge of IS. And any desktop application is going to have vulnerabilities that are found at some point. And that was my next question. So Skype isn't like a, that's more, it's more of a freeware type application, meaning that it's not like an approved at a corporate level that uh, it's recognized as a standard out in the uh, marketplace today. It's just something that's nice. It's a great tool. You and I can use it together. You can use it in a business, but the business might frown on it just because of the security vulnerabilities. Well, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that any business should allow their employees to use it unless it's part of the business communication infrastructure. And even then, let's let's go back to the remote users. If that remote user uh, can, normally gets to the internet by by connecting uh, via VPN back to the corporate network, if they're going to use Skype over that connection, you still have to open up holes in your firewall. So the the way to protect your network, if you're going to use Skype for remote users is to make sure that they drop the VPN connection 
and they go directly to the internet for their communications requirements. Okay, so this is an acceptable piece of software for a, a corporate size business, you feel? It's, as long as the security is addressed up front. It isn't, it isn't right now, but with eBay's acquisition of Skype, there's a lot of conjecture, a lot of, a lot of predictions, and even Gartner is, uh, has written something about this, and that is that since eBay has them, they have been talking about coming up with an enterprise solution. Not only would you be able to safely pass through the, the uh, enterprise perimeter, but you'd also be able to manage it from a central console. Now, that is not available yet, but they're talking about it. Okay, sounds good. Um, anything else anybody wants to say about Skype? I can tell you I've used it. I used it I've used it at home a couple times. It's a great product. I have nothing against it. I just don't think it's ready for, uh, for business at this point. Okay, so let's move on to BIOS rootkit attacks. Now, before we get started in this, I just want everybody to know that I'm going to say BIOS. I know a lot of people laugh and call it BIOS, <laughs> but I grew up... BIOS. Yeah. I grew up in this environment when it was DOS, not DOS. So, and we called it BIOS, so don't it, laugh too hard. Is it I, ASCII 2? No, it's not ASCII 2. No, no. <laughs> Okay, well, Sorry. that's okay, Chris. We didn't bring you on because you're the most technical guy around. So. I'll say BIOS. You say tomato. <clears throat> Move on. Yeah, where's the E on the end? Isn't it silent? Okay, as we've discussed in previous <laughs> podcasts, the frequency of malicious rootkit installations is increasing. Now it seems that even the BIOS, see, now I don't even know how to say it anymore, <laughs> is a potential target. We'll accept it. Thanks. John Heisman, principal security consultant for Next Generation Security Software, announced this week that a collection of functions known as the Advanced Configuration and Power Interface, or ACPI, could be used to deposit a rootkit in the BIOS and flash memory. This is rather easy to do, according to Eastman, because the ACPI has a high-level programming language that's easy to learn and easy to use. This story was covered everywhere. That means I could even use it. Well, almost everybody can use it. So... So I guess I guess what we want to talk about here a little bit is what exactly is a BIOS rootkit. But more importantly, I don't want to. I, I none of us here want to want to bore our listeners with another rendition of of what the dangers are. Instead, we want to take a different twist on this, and that is let's take a look at exactly what the real risks are, because we should always be approaching these things from a risk management viewpoint. We want to we want to explore. Just how worried you should be about this. So, Larry, why don't you explain a little bit about what a bi what BIOS is, where you might find it? Oh, BIOS is um, basic input output system uh, is what it stands for, and it's on every computer or laptop, and you know um, a lot of other devices such as video cards or it, it could be on set top boxes, uh, anything that would need an interface or an inter intermediate between a piece of software and the hardware. And for our uh, for for our purposes on a on a corporate PC. Okay, for those of you who couldn't see, I was about to hit him for stomping his foot. That but okay. happy feet. Go, go ahead, go ahead, mystery man. Yeah, mystery <laughs> man. For in a corporate environment, you, you're going to have the, the BIOS is what is what links your operating system to the hardware at a very low level, and it's a standard set of uh, of calls that any operating system we can use. So when you install Linux, Windows, um, Solaris, or anything, they all make the same calls to the BIOS so they can access the hardware. And um, part of that 
part of the BIOS is it's a, it's a piece of firmware that's on the on the a CMOS chip, and routinely you have to flash the BIOS so um, if there's a bug or if there's a feature improvement or for stability, and that's when you can it opens up to uh, a rootkit. Okay, so. But BIOSes just aren't on motherboards, right? I just want to make this clear. No, no. They can be on a video card or, um, you know, basically any, any device that would need a, it needs an interface between software and hardware. So is, is a root kit like a uh, virus then, or what is it? Well, we're going we're gonna to get to that in a second. But okay. But let's, let's, let's finish up with BIOSes. I just want to make it clear, too, that most people, most normal users will never flash their BIOS. And flashing a BIOS means to to replace the BIOS that's currently on their on a uh, on a board or on their motherboard. I've never flashed anything, including well, a BIOS. And the only reason you would is if there is a problem, a bug, or um, in some cases there's like a feature set that is um, from a later version of that BIOS. And, and, but based on that definition, Chris should have flashed himself a long time. Yes, <laughs> mental. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about what a rootkit is. Um, we've had uh, we've discussed it in previous podcasts, but a rootkit is a uh, uh, is a is a piece of software that hides itself in your network you, or in your system. You can't see it when you call up a list of files. Uh, most antivirus system, uh, software can't find it. Most anti-spyware software can't find it. You usually need a a special purpose utility such as Rootkit Revealer from SysInternals. And uh, again, that's sysinternals.com. I just want to let you know on a sidetrack, there's a lot of nice utilities there that, that are free and can help you to, uh, to manage your environment. So rootkits, once they're installed, will gather data. They can have keystroke loggers installed in them. They can have um, applications that go up and pull down even more malicious code onto your system. And they can take information that they gather and they can send it home for uh, for hackers to use for criminal activities. And is that how they get installed, Tom? How's that? How rootkits? You said when they when they get installed, and how at what point well, are you be, most vulnerable? They can be in, well. Normally, you're most vulnerable when uh, uh, you're when loading you're flashing some flashing your BIOS or well. For a BIOS rootkit, yeah, that's the only way you're going to get it on there is when you're flashing it. So either you have to flash it, and and you'll be you would be flashing it with a BIOS that you downloaded from someplace that was already infected. And okay. We're, we're, okay. And so, but hap, but and this happened back in uh, I think it was 1999 with the Chernobyl virus. It was the last time that we had a really bad BIOS attack. And what happened then was the the uh, BIOS was was downloaded from bulletin boards and from the internet and that type of thing f- with the infection already in it. So as engineers went out and started flashing the BIOS on their systems, they infected them unknowingly. So one of the things you have to be very careful of when you're gonna if you're gonna flash your BIOS and that it, that is to get it from a reputable source. Make sure you're getting it from someplace that you know is going to practice due diligence to keep that firmware safe. So your BIOS is going to be that you're flashing something in your computer, possibly. Uh, I know you can flash the BIOS in a router, possibly. Or, um, I mean, what what type of device? Where are you getting where you're getting your BIOS that you know that it's from a reputable site? 
Well, you go to the vendor site. Yeah. That's the best place to go. Get it from the vendor. So if you've, got a, if you've got a motherboard from Company X, you go to Company X's website or you make a phone call to their support desk and you get the BIOS from them. Yeah, so some of the other times you can get a rootkit on your system is when you're downloading software from a site. You have to be very careful. It can come in via email, which you know today is the, the, uh, the prime way that attackers get malicious software on your, on your systems. Another way is through instant messaging. Uh, we just talked about instant messaging a week or so ago, how, how uh, dangerous that can be to your network. So there are many different ways a rootkit can get on your net, on your uh, on endpoint devices. And, and once it's on one of your endpoint devices, then your entire network is, is uh, susceptible to attack. And I think it's worth noting that um, there's some reputable companies that also have been flagged as installing rootkits on your, on your system. Um, one of the major stories uh, someone might have heard is that Sony and uh, their their uh, copy protection for some of their music discs installed what is technically a rootkit on your system, and that was to uh, the digital rights manager to make sure you weren't copying their music or, or using it illegally. And that was, uh, in every sense of the word, was a rootkit. It was a full piece of software that was hidden from every piece of antivirus or any only thing that could find it was the, the rootkit revealer. So... Some companies do 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 that. Um, it doesn't always have to be malicious intent, but the 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 end result is that your machine is going to run worse. Well, it's not just that it's going to run worse, but the fact is that now you have software that can be exploited that on uh, on your system that you put there because yeah. you installed something that you thought was safe, and uh, attackers can exploit that to do other things to your to your system. So, not. The, the bottom line here is you should never have software on your computer that you don't know is there or you have no control over. I think that's the bottom line. Correct, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about just what the risk is for getting a BIOS rootkit or, or having your BIOS screwed up in any way. The Most motherboards, for example, today require that you set a jumper to uh, flash the BIOS. And a jumper is a little... Uh, pin or a couple there's some there are pins on your motherboard that you put a jumper plug on to connect those two pins electrically and then it tells the system that it's okay to perform a specific act in this case to flash the BIOS to get to those pins you have to actually pop the cover on the system and go inside and make that happen so you know if you've got any kind of physical security on your systems uh, this is going to be very difficult to do the other thing that that a lot of systems have is a BIOS password. Now, a lot of engineers will not even touch the BIOS password. So if they don't, it is not blank in most cases. It has the vendor's password on it. The problem with that is, is that the vendor passwords are available on the Internet or from the vendor. They're, public, they're, they're published and they're common knowledge. So... One of the things that you could do if you want to protect your BIOS from uh, unauthorized tampering is to put a password on the BIOS. Now, there is a way to get around that, and that is to um, remove the battery from systems that, that keep the, the settings, the CMOS settings, if, if uh, your system comes with a battery. Or another way to do it is to uh, set a jumper setting inside the system that will erase the configurations. They're, the reason those exist is because a lot of times people forget the, the CMOS passwords and now they're pretty much hosed. 
So it's people not to scare them. So any root kits, especially a BIOS root kit, you have to do something pretty specific to get it to flash your BIOS. Yeah, you it's have not to, like a worm that's gonna. Well, know. there's one thing that I I come from a different. It's more of a, from a consumer angle, but the, some of the new enthusiast motherboards for like gamers or uh, audio professionals have a uh, a piece of software that will flash the BIOS from Windows. Now, I don't think that'll ever make it to the corporate uh, the corporate realm until it's deemed safe. But you know, I, I think it would be possible for someone to write something that would take advantage. Now you have to know specific hardware, specific model numbers, and you know that software would have to be installed. I don't obviously it's not installed by default with because the motherboard doesn't have a hard drive. But and and then it goes back to you know. <laughs> Be careful what you download from the internet. Be careful what you're putting on your system. Yeah. Be careful, you know, don't go to places that you, that you don't trust to get mm-hmm. stuff that you're going to put on your on your network. Um, you know, for home, that's, you know, you're, if you want to take the chance, that's great because you really, that's your risk and you can accept it. But for people to take that risk at, at the office, uh, that puts the shareholders, the other employees, that puts them at risk and um, also the customers. So, that's that's something that that uh, business users should definitely be uh, be wary of. I guess, and the the bottom line here was I was going through this stuff. Uh, if you have good physical security, you you uh, put a, a decent password on your uh, on your CMOS configuration so that people can't get in and and uh, mess with the BIOS. You're really not at that much risk of this attack. The one huge problem with this, though, uh, in closing with this topic, is there's nothing, absolutely nothing, that exists today that will detect a rootkit in the BIOS. So I mentioned earlier that SysInternals had a rootkit revealer that'll find rootkits on your on your hard disk, but in the BIOS, if you get infected with a rootkit. You're pretty. You you'll probably never know until something occurs that uh, causes you pain. Do so you guys want to say anything else about uh, the BIOS rootkit problems? Was well, there a difference between a non-BIOS rootkit and a BIOS rootkit? Now the functionality is the same. I mean, they're after the same. They're after the same things. Although with uh, Chernobyl, um, Chernobyl back in '99 uh, was destructive. Um, instead of uh, collecting data for criminal intent, they just sort of Chernobyled your system. They Chernobyled your system. <laughs> so, um, but today's today's attackers are going are moving in a different direction. Um, if you go and you read the different uh, postings at Gartner, at uh, Sands.org, at US Cert, the analysts are all seeing attackers going to away from hacking for bragging rights and more toward hacking for profit. So rootkits are perfect for that because they can collect information that can be used to uh, commit fraud through identity theft, to hold uh, organizations hostage, things of that nature. Okay, we're going to move on to our next topic, which is managing unapproved applications. Uh, in today's workplace, users aren't satisfied with the applications provided by the internal IS staff. In an effort to maximize their productivity and to improve their work environment, at least those are the reasons they give, many users install applications brought in from home, downloaded from the internet, or provided by a friend. So 
if it makes users happy, what's the big deal? Guys, what's Nothing. the big deal? Just let them go, man. Yeah. <clears throat> I would let them install anything they wanted. And I'm that, one of those users. <laughs> okay. And Especially that's why, games. And that's why yeah. you're not the security manager. <laughs> We're I, trying to get this guy to change. He's the security manager. So. And I, I've had a lot of experience with that. Um, in previous uh, um, jobs, I was uh, more of an engineer type. And, and the challenges of trying to uh, of troubleshooting and trying to fix things with, with uh, unapproved applications running rampant through the network... It you know the the cost of ownership and the cost of support is just it's it's much higher at least from a from an engineering type standpoint and you know Tom can probably speak about this as well from you know pure security. Well, you got security, and don't you have also the um, illegal um, applications that can be installed? Like if I had Microsoft uh, version of something that you need to purchase, and I say borrowed it from a friend isn't that also a yeah an licensing issue? is huge yeah because you can um is it the bsa is that the name of the organization business um it's the microsoft organization where they uh you know you're allowed to turn in your boss and you get i think you well get it's not really a microsoft organization no, they, it's a they, software publishers association they they found they have, it i believe they have an <laughs> they have a they have an 800 number well i'm not sure they did i think the company that got whacked the most uh, through the years has been AutoCAD, uh, companies like that that sell software for $10,000 a whack. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and because it's so expensive, that they're, they're highly pirated. Yes. So, but the Software Publishers Association, you're right, you can, go in, you can call an 800 number and turn in your boss, your coworkers, yeah. and uh, anybody else that, that you think that, that deserves to uh, be fined heavily for using pirated software. So you bring up a good point. Um, unlicensed software being used in a business environment, especially if the business is taking no steps to try to prevent that from happening, uh, put some liability on the organization because most of the software is being used by employees for business purposes. And um, you know, with the advent of uh, file sharing networks and um, you know all the other sources to get illegal or cracked software, that it becomes a huge problem very quickly. Well, yeah, and the, this is a big problem, and it's it continues to be a problem. I know that in one organization that we work uh, with, they have, you know, they have very strict policies or compliance policies about uh, pirated software, and uh, you're subject to immediate termination if you they catch you in uh, peer-to-peer sites yeah. downloading stuff. So, but the other the other risk to unapproved applications is uh, is the the potential for compromise of the network. I want to introduce a term into this conversation, uh, deperimeterization. Gesundheit. Thanks. <laughs> deperimeterization is, the, is a term that's, being, uh, that's growing in, in popularity that is used to describe the softening, or not really the softening of, because network perimeters are as hard or harder as they've ever been, but it's used to describe the fact that the perimeter is not the only thing that you have to be concerned with because of people bringing in PDAs, bringing in uh, taking, bringing in laptops and jacking them into your network. The perimeter is, as we knew it, which is that you know at the firewalls and at your dial-in devices is is being circumvented. So if somebody takes a laptop, they take it out, they they take it to a hotel, they they plug it into the network, they take it home or the internet, they take it home, they plug they they go up to the internet. They surf and, and pull down data and pull down applications, and they bring it into your network. 
and they jack it in, they just bypassed your perimeter. So anything, any, any goodies that happen to be on that laptop are going to be shared with the rest of your endpoint devices. And I've had some experience with the other route where you, you, you force a user to that they can never surf the Internet or, or attach themselves to the Internet without first VPN into the network. And then yet that brings up a whole new set of challenges where your support costs go up because, um, you know, John is sitting at home. He's got his new DSL and his new DSL router with NAT. He wants to be able – for him to be able to work or, or even surf the Internet for anything, he has to VPN back to the network then you have to backhaul all the internet traffic back to the main office or back to you know a corporate entity and then out and then you can filter it from there but that like i said there's a lot of challenges there as far as support and there's more extra costs involved with that okay. that yep those are those are good points larry and so let's let's take a look at maybe some ways that uh, organizations can manage um, unapproved applications now let's define clearly what an unapproved application is. It's any application that was not approved by typically the IS department for installation and implementation within the business. So one way to do this is just to ignore it and hope it goes away. Well, as we've talked about with liabilities and with the risks of, of uh, full network infections uh, based on unwanted, unwanted visitors being installed along with these apps, uh, and in addition to that, you have the vulnerabilities that exist in these applications that aren't being patched by IS because IS doesn't know about them. So if, uh, if a vulnerability is uh, reported, like uh, from US CERT, most users are just going to ignore it, and you just open up another hole in your network. Another way to do it is to prohibit the installation of all unapproved applications. Um, one of the problems with that is, is that somebody needs to keep a list of the approved applications. So you have to go out, you have to determine what applications are required to run your business. In a smaller business, that's, not, that's probably not a big deal, but in a large business with 60,000, 100,000 employees, that's, all, that's a full-time job for a couple people. And uh, then you also have to have a way to ensure that if an application is installed by a user, that that is not on the approved user or the approved application list that you can that you remove it that you know about it you remove it and you remove it in such a way as you don't destroy any production data that they may have uh, created with that application another way to do it is to is to manage the application or, or manage the implementation of all applications in other words allow users to install whatever they want and then give them a probation period the, the software compliance team could be notified that the application was installed and, the, for example, the user could be given 30 days of, of use while the team decides whether or not this is a harmful application. If it's not deemed harmful, you put it on the approved list and now at least they know that they need to patch it. So what do you guys think about those three different approaches? Well, I, <clears throat> I think that, uh, you know, it almost... Sounds like a full-time job in some respects, but, um, I mean, I kind of had some questions here about maybe you can educate me on um, how, how do you go, is it through the operating system, a setting to prohibit? I mean, is there software available on the market today to monitor this for you, to help you out as an organization for the larger companies, or, or how do you guys go about it? 
the easiest way to do it is not to allow users to log in as local administrator because um, if you're logged in as local administrator you can install just about anything and it's not just the unapproved applications that are a good reason not to allow users to sign in that way because malware when it's put on your system and it wants to install itself takes on the permissions rights and permissions of the user who's logged in at the time so if the user logged in at the time is logged in at the time as a local administrator or with local administrator rights there's nothing to stop that malware from installing itself in the registry the the uh, the operating system folders or any place else that it needs to be installed the software to help find this stuff is things like Microsoft's SMS systems management server and I've seen um, I think it's uh, Tivoli, um, Intel, Landesk. These are all like uh, desktop management systems where uh, you know you. And I think Active Directory also has um, from Microsoft their uh, their OS has some of this some of these features where you publish applications that are approved and the users through a uh, a client piece are able to install um, what they need and there's a uh, an authorization that goes through and from the back end you can you know. You can do full reports on who's got what, how many licenses you have. Um, if someone is not supposed to have it, um, you can either deny them from installing it in the first place or remove it from their, their their workstation. And one key feature to those is that you can also remove, or usually you can remove uh, unapproved applications automatically, remotely. But uh, as Tom can probably uh, attest, there's... Uh, the entry point into these systems, especially for a large organization, is is uh, astronomical. I mean, you're talking. Um, the last time I checked, I think it was for Landesk. You were looking at fifty dollars a node, and if you've got you know fifteen hundred, two thousand or more uh, workstations, you know that's that's a significant investment. So I think a lot of companies forego that and try to manage it themselves. Good points, Larry. Those are very good points. So. Um, I'd ask Chris if uh, he had any other questions, but he just uh, stepped out to try to silence his cell phone that was uh, uh, interrupting our, our recording session That's here. fine. I got nothing, oh, nothing okay. to do. Thanks, He's, Chris. It's been silenced. <laughs> okay. All right. I hope it, I hope it was painless. <laughs> yeah. It's in a couple pieces. No. All right. So let's move on to uh, our, our feature topic and our last topic, which is designing an intrusion defense solution. Um, since Larry went through the actual work of doing this, I'm going to let him walk through what he did for the organization that we work for uh, to assess the different solutions and to uh, the thought processes he went through to come up with the solution that he's proposing this week. So, Larry, why don't you explain a little bit about uh, what what you went through uh, trying to put together this design and uh, let's... We're going to try to keep the vendors out of this, but just come up. You know, we just want to talk about the general uh, concepts that uh, that we discussed and and what we're designing into our solution. Sure. Um, there's a, some requirements we had laid out originally, and I'll try and keep these short. Um, the first one was to provide uh, protection at the perimeter for common intrusions, which would be uh, normal things like. Uh, you know, uh, malicious intent from hackers, uh, spyware, malware, things like that. Um, we need some visibility into the network because at the moment we didn't have much, if any. Um, that way we can at least see our traffic, um, do some analysis. Third of all, we wanted to be able to implement some 
some access rules and um, you know some firewall functionality so that we could secure certain subnets, particularly HIPAA and SOC stuff. And last of all, and the big it was the big one for me was the uh, reporting capabilities. Um, traditionally, um, IDS and IPS, there's a lot of information, and I wanted to make sure that we had the proper um, uh, reporting capability so that we could collate the data, normalize it, and actually do something with it. So, you know, once we got past that, we laid that out, and then we started to look at vendors, and I won't get into any specific vendors, but, you know, there came, there came a time when we had discussed uh, intrusion detection and in, in, intrusion prevention, which are two totally different things, and just speak about those real quickly. The the detection is obviously just detection. It's a pass, passive thing. We're only looking at packets. We're not going to act upon them. And the prevention is um, exactly what it sounds like. Where, based on the uh, the analysis of the the network data, you're going to take some action on it, whether it be block, alert, warn, things like that. So, part of the project is we wanted to make sure that we could get some uh, some prevention in there and and take action on some of this stuff. Well, yeah, I think we want to talk a little bit about the fact that uh, intrusion detection systems can be used to to uh, block data by killing sessions and and uh, reconfiguring uh, network devices on the fly. But those kinds of things can can be exploited by attackers and result in in your assisting with a denial of service attack on your own network. So. Our our uh, preference was not to use that kind of technology in, in our environment. Correct. And you know, um, I think you've written a paper about it, Tom. Plug plug about um, that the the tr- traditional intrusion defense um, systems like Snort are there's still a good place for them, and you can get a diversity in design where you have a, a hardware solution, and then you can also put in a Snort box and make sure you're getting the same kind of results out of each one. So. It's definitely a place for it, and in the entry into in, you know IDS is extremely cheap. So, you know, part of our design was that we were probably you know eventually going to use both types of systems to make sure that we have full coverage. So, I think we need to go on a little bit farther as to why we might want to use both IPS and IDS. Um, the advantages of IDS are, are that it's inexpensive. Uh, because it's inexpensive, you can put it all over your network. Uh, the disadvantage is that it collects a lot of data and you need to be able to gather all that data and make some sense out of it. Um, IPS is, m- is more expensive, which means that you want to put it in places that, that, are, that are most critical to your network and it can actually block, inform- it can actually block packets that are part of suspected traffic or suspicious traffic. And you don't have to turn IDS on. I mean, IPS devices can collect information like IDS, but there's no reason for that if you're using them strictly for prevention purposes. So if you take the two technologies and you you use them together in a network, they complement each other. You can put IDS in those places where you want to just get some visibility into the network, and you can put IPS at uh, the the entrance into your network from the internet. You could put it at entrances into subnets to that they contain critical business applications. You know, contrary to what a lot of uh, information security writers are saying, I don't really think IDS is dead at this point, and I think it has a, a big role to play in the design we're putting together. Agreed. 
So from a layman's standpoint, can I ask a question here? Um, how is how do you accomplish this? How is it is it done with a combination of hardware, software, settings, and a firewall, an operating system? How how, how do you guys go about it? Sure. Um, there's multiple ways. There's multiple vendors. Multiple methods. Um, there are pure software solutions that you throw on a, um, a standard server, an x86 server, and then there's a lot of purpose-built hardware that you, you put in and um, that generally is an inline device, which, um, which basically it goes in your network stream between two points. So between the users and the, and the data center, you would throw an inline device in there, and then that's where you could uh, sniff the traffic and then take action on and it. An inline device, the data actually has to pass, physically pass through the device to get uh, across the wire, uh, which is different than an IDS device. So one of the things that, that Larry was always was very cognizant of was what would happen if the inline device failed. There are two ways that an inline device can fail. One is to fail open and one is to fail closed. If a device fails closed, um, when it fails, traffic is stopped. It's like putting up a gate. Packets just will not flow across the wire. If it fails open, even though you're not, it, the device isn't performing IPS uh, functionality, the data will still flow. So the, the approach we took was to have it fail open uh, in those areas where in, in those areas where we had the most critical data or we thought we needed to be uh, have some visibility in the network at all times, we would just put in a failover device. An IDS device is different. It can't sit in line. And the reason it can't sit in line is because it doesn't have the power to process all the data it needs to process, uh, do all the reporting that you ask of it, and still get the packets across without inducing a, a high level of latency. So it, if you, um, I guess we can talk a little bit about it. Uh, one way to do this is to, is to plug it into a span port. It's a switch port analyzer port on a switch. And what, what you do is you, you configure the switch so that all the traffic goes out that port and so the IDS device can see it. That's the only way you can get everything to it, uh, again, because it's not in line. So you don't have to really worry about the... Um, the uh, IDS device going down because if it fails, it fails and it has really no impact on the network other than uh, our lack of visibility. Correct. So you know, at the end of uh, at the end of all of our research, I can um, speak to Chris's question too. We ended up going with a hybrid solution, which was um, um, hardware inline hardware devices for the critical the critical areas of the network and uh, critical subnets, and. Um, the, the, the second piece of this, which I don't think we really spoke about, but I'll touch on, is a, a SIM product, a security information management, or um, there's also security information and event management. But basically, this is the, this is the tool that is going to, to pull together all the information, all the data. It's going to normalize it, it's going to correlate it, and it's going to present it to me or whoever uh, in a way that allows us to, to actually use it. So rather than have uh, a huge pile of network data we, we really can't read, it's going to uh, it's going to print out some nice pretty reports so we can actually take some action. Now there's two schools of thought here, at least from my research, is that you can do it in house with a piece of software, or you can pay someone um, for managed security services. And there's a number of players out there. I will not I won't say any of the names off the top of my head, but at the end of the day, um, we chose a managed security service um, with a large provider over the in house uh, software solution. Um, 
there's a number of things you get from a managed security uh, provider that you don't from the internal software is uh, the correlation of the data is the big one and that they uh, they have no problem collecting from multiple devices and the major one is uh, man hours. Uh, they handle all the all the correlation, all the processing for you, and they will actually and they actually prefer to manage your devices for you. And the nice thing was, uh, after Larry was done negotiating with this vendor, we came up with a solution, a managed solution that cost us about what it would cost us to do it in house, um, but we get um, a lot more value in that they. Uh, they help us to put things into perspective. So the things that show up on the portal they're going to provide us with, they actually go out and they look at the rest of the world and see whether we're being attacked in isolation. They try to put some sense behind what, what we're seeing on our network in, in terms of what other, what other healthcare companies are seeing, what other, uh, uh, what other businesses and in other industries are seeing, what other industries and in other countries are seeing. So that we have a better idea of, of what exactly our risks are. Yeah, and the way the service works is that, um, like Tom had said, they are going to collect data from anything and everything we want, um, and then they process it and present it on a portal for us. And that portal is uh, pretty powerful. There's um, a plethora of uh, reports and uh, alerting you can do. And uh, beyond that, there's trending. There's you know anything anything you want to get out of this data, you can you can slice and dice it however you want. Okay, okay, I have a question. I said the word plethora. Plethora. A lot. There's many. <clears throat> there's many reports. It's a very very no, cool no, service. No, no, I no, even no. knew that. No, no, no. You, you don't understand. I know what plethora means. Okay. But I shouldn't. Use I it. have a master's degree. <clears throat> but but, <laughs> I, but I was just surprised. A master of. I was just surprised that you that I knew it knew what it meant. Lord. Well, you know. I'm, How about a cornucopia? Yeah, a man. Cornucopia is good. Yeah, cornucopia of reports. All right. So, <laughs> so once, right, so we need we need to wrap this. We're up. gonna wrap it up. Wrap it. Okay. So we, we chose a hardware solution. We chose a a managed security provider, and the combination of those two together is going to give us full coverage. It's going to give us everything. We're going to meet all of our requirements. We're going to be probably under budget, and we're going to have um, more visibility than we thought we would ever have. Probably under budget, most likely. It'll be under. Budget. It's looking. It's looking really good. It, it, the project's turned out well. Thank God. He's just gunning for more dollars. That's all. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I think we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. This has gone way beyond what most of our podcasts do. Uh, in the future, we'll uh, we'll probably we'll be shortening these up a little bit, probably covering less to, or fewer topics, but. Um, this was this was our first attempt at getting three of us in a room, and it's been uh, it's been real. Well, that's it for this week. But before we go, I'd like to uh, just remind everyone to visit our blog site at uh, adventuresinsecurity.com/blog. We have a lot of articles up there that we post. Uh, uh, Larry just posted one uh, yesterday, and tomorrow we're going to have one going up uh, that has to do with uh, securing storage in your data center and uh, also on uh, mobile devices. So until next time, be careful what you click.